This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Progressive people concerned about climate change want a Green New Deal enacted in the United States and many other countries, too. But is that green vision a dangerous myth? Will it really help save the natural world and all of us? Question everything. Our guest Megan Seibert says there is a way out, but it is harsher than we have been told. Seibert is executive director of The Real Green New Deal Project, based in Oregon. With her master's in system science and environmental management, Megan just published a key paper with Canadian super scientist Dr. William Rees. He's Professor Emeritus from the University of British Columbia. We ran several Bill Rees speeches on this program in the past. The new paper is titled, Through the Eye of a Needle, an Eco-Heterodox Perspective on the Renewable Energy Transition. Megan Seibert, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Your paper examines a wide range of renewable energy technologies. You really go into it. Can we go fossil-free and still maintain something like our current lifestyles? No, we cannot, and that is uh, one of the points that we drive home in the paper. Uh, that's one of the points we drive home on our website of our organization is, you know, just kind of stepping out and saying the, the bold truth that a lot of people are, are afraid to say that, no, we can't. Essentially, kind of an easy way to think about it is that life after fossil fuels will look like life before fossil fuels. And in the paper, you talk about collectively fatal problems with so-called renewable energy, and we will get to that. But first, we've got to get across a barrier, and a friend of mine is always saying this to me. Are critics of solar, wind, and the rest really just helping fossil fuel interests by undermining public confidence in renewables? No, and, and we would say that this is a false binary. And we see this a lot in the discussion about climate change and renewable energy and sustainability, that I think the framing is oftentimes wrong. And we set up these dualistic options, that it's either this or that. If you're supporting this, you must be against that. Uh, and we push back against a lot of this framing. So it's, it's not a question of fossil fuels or so-called renewable energy technologies. Our point is is that it's neither. Neither are possible. Neither are sustainable. Clearly, I think a lot of people understand that fossil fuels are not sustainable. But this, this myth, this bright green lie that we're being sold is that these so-called renewable technologies are renewable, are sustainable, and they're not. So by simply stating that fact uh, is not tantamount to supporting fossil fuels. It's simply saying that neither are an option, neither are sustainable. So what does clean energy promise? What is it in the green dream that you find is not sustainable? Right. So these you know, so-called renewable energy technologies, I just like to, to call them faux renewables for a bit of shorthand. There's nothing renewable or sustainable about them. So every step of their life cycle uh, requires fossil fuels, from mining the non-renewable resources to putting the finished product on a truck to transport it from its manufacturing site to its installation site. Every aspect of these technologies is completely subsidized by fossil fuels. 
They all rely entirely on non-renewable resources that have been vastly depleted during the industrial age and that also require or entail uh, an enormous amount of ecological destruction, not to mention social injustices. Uh, and they involve an enormous amount of toxic byproducts and toxic uh, inputs. So nothing about them is at all sustainable. Um, it's just, they're just kind of, you know, some people call them extenders of fossil fuels. It's fossil fuels in a different form, but in a way almost worse because we're also using an enormous amount of non, other non-renewable resources besides fossil fuels. Yeah, as a person coping with heat and smoke and threatening fires, I continue to see global climate change as the main and most imminent threat to humanity and all nature as we know it. But it seems you and Bill think there's a dangerous mistake underlying that. Uh, talk to us about it. Absolutely. So the typical conception in the mainstream is that climate change is the singular existential threat to humanity. But uh, in our paper, and a, a core tenet of our, of our work at Real GND, is to push back against that and say this is incredibly misleading, that climate change is one of many symptoms of the underlying cancer, which is ecological overshoot. And there are many other symptoms of overshoot besides climate change. Uh, deforestation, desertification, ocean acidification, pollution, all of these things are parallel symptoms of ecological overshoot. And we really have little hope of having an effective response to our ecological crises if we don't uh, accurately understand what the nature of the problem is, if we don't accurately diagnose it. And so, yeah, we're, we're trying to really change the collective paradigm and mindset and understanding about what it is that we're up against. But it is not just climate. Uh, climate is just one symptom of overshoot. And overshoot, we could talk about it kind of in two ways, in just very simple, plain terms. Overshoot is too many of any particular species, in this case humans, consuming and polluting too much beyond the carrying capacity of the planet, of the ecosphere. A little bit more kind of academic or rigorous of a conception of overshoot is that we're exceeding the biogenerative and assimilative capacities of the ecosphere. You know, even though I follow these things, I was shocked to read your stats on the massive decline of almost all other living things, especially mammals, during my lifetime. Would you mind reading those numbers from your paper for us? Yes, and, and that is also another parallel symptom of overshoot. So, yeah, if I read straight from the paper, uh, we say prior to the dawn of agriculture eight to ten millennia ago, humans accounted for less than 1% and wild mammals 99% of mammalian biomass on Earth. Today, Homo sapiens constitute 36% and our domestic livestock another 60% of a much-expanded mammalian biomass, compared with only 4% for all wild species combined. McRae et al. estimate that the populations of non-human vertebrate species declined by 58% between 1970 and 2012 alone. Freshwater, marine, and terrestrial vertebrate populations declined by 81%, 36%, and 38%, respectively, and invertebrate populations fell by about 50%. Wow. So in, in your overview of fossil power that needs replacement, 
You point to the need for intense high heat in all kinds of manufacturing processes, including producing wind turbines and solar panels and just about everything else we use. How much heat do we need, and why can't electric energy produce it? Yes, I wouldn't say it's so much a matter of how much heat, but what are the sources of energy that underpin modern techno-industrial manufacturing as we know it today? Uh, And those are all fossil fuels in various forms, uh, predominantly uh, natural gas and petroleum, followed by coal and then electricity generated from a variety of, of fossil energy sources. And as we go through uh, in detail in the paper, if you look at the potential non-fossil substitutes for all of these, they're simply not viable. So you you hit on a really important point uh, that very few people talk about, that all of these so-called renewable energy technologies are built, are generated through, through modern industrial manufacturing processes But the problem is these processes will completely go away when fossil fuels go away. I don't understand why that is. I mean, it seems to me if I want uh, heat in my house, I can do it with natural gas or oil, or I could do it with electricity. Why won't renewables be able to create their own manufacturing? Well, they simply can't build themselves from the ground up. So there, there are no manufacturing facilities for these so-called renewable energy technologies today that are entirely fueled by the very so-called renewable technologies that they're building. So this goes back to the the earlier point that this is all subsidized by fossil fuels. If you remove fossil fuels from the equation, we don't have the energy to do the manufacturing in the first place. These technologies cannot build themselves from the ground up and then have sufficient surplus energy to power modern society. Not everyone agrees with what you just said, and I am going to dig around and see if I can find some other voices who who say that, yeah, solar could power a plant that produces solar panels, but I don't know. I guess it's partly, again, getting back to that high heat thing. You talk about 3,200 degrees or more Fahrenheit required. Exactly. Yeah, and and, uh, so, and even we're talking about electrifying so-called renewable energy technologies only produce electricity. And we're very well aware of the problems of storing electricity. There are simply no solutions at scale for storing the amount of electricity we need to store. And even if there were, we would turn the planet into uh, a rock because we'd have to mine so many non-renewable minerals. Uh, So we have the problem of storing the electricity, and then we would have to electrify every single aspect of manufacturing. And again, as we point out in the paper, this is, you're talking about retooling all the equipment all around the world. If it were even possible, there are no solutions that have been advanced for electrifying all aspects of manufacturing. Uh, You simply can't. Uh, And even if you could, the cost would be, exorbitant, impossibly high. Yeah, you bring out another aspect in this paper that I hadn't really thought about. As individuals, we're always encouraged to examine our personal fossil fuel emissions, but we learned from this new paper that in the United States, at least, industry uses about one-third of all the energy that actually gets delivered. That's really left out of discussion uh, far too often, I think. 
Uh, it is, yeah. Industry and, and manufacturing in general is, is really, it's, it's kind of kept behind the curtain. You know, a lot of the conversation about climate change, renewable energy, sustainability, there's so much that is just left behind this, this veil that we, you have to pull, lift that veil, you have to pull back the curtain uh, yourself and ask the questions because they're simply not being raised in the mainstream. Yeah, it almost sounds like we could build out a large array of renewable energy facilities using fossil fuels, but then after 25 or 30 years, when they need to be replaced, there's nothing. Exactly, and this is another key aspect that practically no one in the mainstream is talking about. Even if we did do a build-out here in 10 years, we have this problem that solar panels and high-tech wind turbines have a lifespan of anywhere from 20 to 30 years. So we're talking about continually replacing these technologies. And again, even if we did have the energy to do this from a manufacturing perspective, which we don't, we're talking about just a vast quantity of non-renewable minerals and and metals that need to be mined uh, in perpetuity. And, And this is an impossibility. We live on a finite planet with finite resources. Hence, again, why we we drive home the point, what's being called renewable energy technologies are not renewable. They cannot be renewable by definition if they are made out of non-renewable materials. So academics like Mark Jacobson say that we can power the United States by mid-century with just wind, solar, and hydroelectric power, maybe with hydrogen as an energy in between. They say we can do it, and basically you're saying we can't. Right, and, you know, we're, we're not the only ones questioning Jacobson. I mean, quite a few papers have come out poking holes in their methodology and their modeling approaches. Clack et al. are probably the most well-known example of this. But, you know, you look at Jacobson's paper or other similar papers, and it, it's kind of a black box. They just kind of assume that all of these technologies are even viable, that they can even be produced in the first place. And they make a wild, completely untenable assumption. This is why it's very important to be curious, be a critical thinker, and and ask questions about these fantastical stories that are being sold to us. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock. Our guest is Megan Seibert, and we're talking about the real Green New Deal, and what we should be doing. I have a barrel full of what about questions. For example, what about Tesla's multi-billion dollar gigafactory in Nevada? There are more gigafactories springing up like mushrooms super fast in Germany and China. It looks like a lot of lithium-ion batteries will come on stream in the next couple of years. What is your take on that? Right, and this might be another good time for me to read straight from our paper, if you can bear with me. And before I read some of those mind-boggling numbers, um, again, I come back to the, you know, I say that a lot of this comes back to first principles. So again, even if these, you know, gigafactories, you know, battery production facilities are springing up everywhere, we still come back to the foundational point that we live on a finite planet with finite resources, non-renewable resources, that have been vastly depleted over the past 200, 250 years. 
batteries, along with all these other faux renewable technologies, require non-renewable resources. So they may be springing up now, but they are simply not sustainable. So if I read directly from our paper, we say, an entire year of production from the world's largest lithium-ion battery manufacturing facility, which is Tesla's $5 billion gigafactory in Nevada, could store only three minutes' worth of annual U.S. electricity demand. Manufacturing a quantity of batteries that could store just two days' worth of U.S. electricity demand would require 1,000 years of gigafactory production. Storing only 24 hours' worth of U.S. electricity generation in lithium batteries would cost $11.9 trillion, take up 345 square miles, and weigh 74 million tons at an enormous ecological cost. A battery-centric future means mining gigatons of rare earth ores, for every kilogram of battery, 50 to 100 kilograms of ore needs to be mined, transported, and processed. Constructing enough lithium batteries to store only 12 hours worth of daily power consumption would require 18 months worth of global primary energy production and the entire global supply of several minerals. So again, we keep coming back to the same, uh, we keep butting up against the same limits. We live on a finite planet with finite resources, and these so-called solutions are simply not sustainable. Does your review of this energy tech suggest that spending a few trillion dollars on wind and solar might even make the situation worse? Well, what's the point? We're spending precious, precious money and using precious resources that could go towards real, viable, sustainable solutions. Well, again, the amount of water and toxic waste and emissions of super warming gases, all from manufacturing solar panels, for example, is shocking and hardly mentioned. Please tell us about that. And, and again, if you wouldn't mind reading a bit from your paper so we get all those figures. Right. So from our paper, we say for every one megawatt of solar panels produced, about 1.4 tons of toxic substances, including hydrochloric acid, sodium hydroxide, sulfuric acid, nitric acid, and hydrogen fluoride, along with 2,868 tons of water are used, while 8.6 tons of emissions are released, 8.1 tons of which are the perfluorinated compounds sulfur hexafluoride, nitrogen trifluoride, and hexafluoroethane that are thousands of times more potent than CO2. Other toxic byproducts, such as trichlorosilane gas, silicon tetrachloride, and dangerous particulates from the wafer sawing process are also produced. Thin film solar panels are made with cadmium, which is a carcinogen and genotoxin. So again, not, not so green and clean. Not really. Uh, and, and then you claim, quote, and this blows my mind, batteries also have higher greenhouse gas emissions than internal combustion engines. I couldn't believe it. So I looked up your source. It is a paper from scientists in China titled, Cradle-to-gate greenhouse gas emissions of battery electric and internal combustion engine vehicles in China, end quote. But does that presume the electric engines in China are built with coal power instead of, say, hydropower available in some jurisdictions? Are, are we really sure that, uh, say, a Tesla car is going to, in the end, put out more greenhouse gases than me continuing to drive my old car? Right, and again, so this comes back to... You know, we, we, we need to widen the, the scope and the frame of analysis. We need to, to be asking the right questions. 
it's not a matter of internal combustion engine car or an electric car. We come back to manufacturing and life before and after fossil fuels. We won't be able to manufacture cars in the absence of fossil fuels. So it's not a matter of which type of car. We have to come to terms with the fact that if manufacturing as we know it today will go away, that means we won't be able to manufacture cars. Hence why we talk at the end of our paper about what truly renewable sources of energy will be. You do have some solutions, and and you do have a, a vision of maybe the difficult but possible way out of this, and I want to get to that. But first, I... I also note that the paper does contain a lot of pessimism. For example, we read, quote, with accelerating climate change, possible food shortages, no viable alternatives to fossil fuels, and the time when the trucks stop running, uh, the title of a, a book that you cite, not far off, the prospects for our globalized, transport-based, just-in-time, urbanized civilization are dire, end quote. Now, I have to note that Bill Reese has been saying the system will collapse, literally run out of gas, for a couple of decades, but the system remains. Why should we believe this dire prediction, and is there any time limit on this? I mean, are we saying that it might collapse uh, 10 years from now, 100 years from now? What, what are your thoughts? Kind of two parts to that question. So the first one is, just because people have been talking about overshoot and the realities of our one-off fossil fuel blip that underscores all of life as we know it today, just because people have been talking about these things, very few people, for maybe a few decades now, doesn't render it a moot point. It simply means people have been you know, raising the red flag for a while, and it's fallen on deaf ears to our own detriment. This is a reality that we are in overshoot, that every aspect of life as we know it today is subsidized by fossil fuels, and that when fossil fuels are no longer, this way of life will be no longer. If we had heeded the warning of people like Bill Reese, say, 20 years ago, we'd be in a lot better position than we are today, but we didn't heed the warnings, and so we're in even more of a dire situation. So simply because society doesn't listen and respond accordingly doesn't mean that the warnings uh, were not accurate or sound. It's impossible to make these sort of predictions. But the key points are, are that it's not a matter of how many res- reserves we have left. You know, there's plenty of oil reserves. It's an issue of two things. There's a decreasing energy return on energy invested. Uh, as well as uh, money return on on energy invested. So I could be off on these numbers, but I believe um, the global aggregate EROI uh, for fossil fuels right now is about 14 to 1. And modern society requires an an EROI of about no less than 7 to 1 in order to function. And that the EROI of fossil fuels continues to decline. So 14 is... We're butting up uh, pretty scarily up against seven. It's going to be more expensive to extract the oil that we need and to have a sufficient return on that energy that we're able to extract. We know this is coming, so let's heed the warnings now instead of going, well, how many years do we have left and maybe we can keep milking the system and (laughs) continuing on our current trajectory. Let's come face-to-face with what we're up against and 
get off of fossil fuels as soon as we can and transition over to, you know, quote, the new world as soon as we can. If the Green New Deal, as before the U.S. Congress and in people's minds, just swapping out green energy for the old energy and carrying on, if that's not the way out, what do you and Dr. Bill Reese propose? So, first of all, if our core underlying problem is overshoot, then there's a pretty simple response to that. The, the antidote to overshoot is a, is a massive contraction of the human enterprise. So, very simply put, we need far fewer humans consuming far less uh, energy and, and material resources. So, we're talking roughly there, there are 8 billion humans on the planet right now. Again, kind of use the template of what was possible before fossil fuels, the maximum human population at the onset of the fossil fuel age was about a billion. So we're looking at needing to reduce our global population down to about a billion or so. And of course, we've been operating in a state of overshoot for so long that we've greatly diminished the carrying capacity. So we might need to reduce our size even below a billion, but let's just say a billion. Uh, we need to do this very rapidly. Once we stop using fossil fuels, that will take care of a lot of our material consumption because it's fossil fuels that has enabled the extraordinary levels of consumption that we've seen. So that's the first thing that we need to do is a massive contraction of the human enterprise, namely population reduction and transitioning away from fossil fuels to truly renewable sources of energy, which are going to be uh, biomass, namely wood, uh, simple mechanical generation uh, from water and, and wind. We're talking uh, passive solar. And then, of course, a return to a lot of human and animal power. Well, you're not alone calling for an end to the growth paradigm. A couple of months ago, we had a young scholar from ETH Zurich, Lawrence Kaiser, explaining his paper on planned degrowth of 5% per year. We had author J.B. McKinnon telling us consumerism is killing us and nature too. We even did two shows a while ago about the illusion of green energy, as described by Ozzy Zayner. I wonder, do you think this is managed decline. I don't know what to call it. We even lack the language and the concepts to do this. Is it managed decline, guided collapse, planned retraction, planned retreat, or what do we call it? That's not so important. I think whatever sticks uh, will stick. Uh, we call it, uh, you know, Bill and I and, and we at Real GND just call it contraction, managed contraction. Degrowth is a really, really big buzzword right now. Um, the problem I see with degrowth is that oftentimes when people use that word, sometimes they just use it to refer to ceasing growth, but they don't necessarily mean it in the sense of contraction. And what is One Earth Living? Yeah, One Earth Living is essentially living within caring capacity. So living in a harmonious balance with, you know, we talked before about the biogenerative and assimilative capacities of the planet, um, you know, the planet can only generate uh, so many resources for our consumption, and it can only assimilate so much of our waste. So one planet living is living within that carrying capacity of what the, what the planet can generate and assimilate, uh, let's just say, every year. You know, this reminds me, just in the news in early August, an 81-year-old New Hampshire man was 
living in his off-grid cabin for 27 years. He just got arrested and jailed for it, and then the cabin mysteriously burned to the ground. I guess they were accusing him of being a squatter. But if we're going to return to simpler living, maybe this main recluse is the new ideal American citizen. What do you think? don't think that it has to be a recluse by any means. If that's what somebody wants, that's fine. But I think a big part of this contraction and return to simpler ways will absolutely involve a, a return to a greater sense of community. And, you know, we've certainly lost that in our technological modern age. You know, people are suffering from feeling alone and isolated. You know, their, their best friends and their greatest source of companionship are their technological devices. This is simply no way to live. So I think there are a lot of silver linings to this return to a different way of living and to the contraction. And definitely one of those silver linings is is a return to community. And nobody wants to talk about fewer humans, although you just did, and, and how we get there. Is there a humane way toward population reduction? It's really unfortunate that so much of the conversation around population reduction focuses around, you know, so-called coercive measures. I mean, common sense tells you that there are plenty of humane, just, fair ways to reduce population. And work has been done on this. There are several countries who have done this quite successfully. And so just to be clear, I think when people talk about coercion in the sense of population reduction, essentially what they're getting at is forced sterilization. So we by no means need to do this. Of course, that is unethical. But there's a whole toolbox of ways that we can reduce the population. I mean, financial incentives will go a long ways. And and it'll differ based on every country, based on every region, based on what works best in a particular cultural context. But, you know, we have financial incentives, financial fines, making contraception and abortion free and universally available widespread education. There are a lot of perfectly sensible tools in the toolbox to do this. Megan Seibert, tell us about your own group, the Real Green New Deal Project. So we uh, were founded in 2020. You said earlier we're a U.S.-based nonprofit think tank, and we have two primary objectives. The first one is just to get this message out to the world, is to change our collective understanding about climate change and renewable energy and sustainability, to shift it from this technology-based false optimism, false hope, to very sober, clear-eyed ecological realism. The other component of our work is to develop uh, what we're calling a genuine energy transition plan or, you know, a concrete, actionable plan for the energy transformation. So, There are quite a few energy transition plans out there that have been produced by numerous academics and universities. I mean, Stanford and Princeton and a a whole range of other institutions have produced these, and they're all grounded in this, you know, fantastical notion of business as usual by alternative means. So we're setting out to produce uh, a genuine plan. 
We have been looking through the eye of a needle, an eco-heterodox perspective on the renewable energy transition, a challenging paper led by our guest Megan Seibert and the eminent Canadian scientist Dr. William Reese. Find links to the paper and works we discussed in my weekly show blog that's published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org and check out www.realgnd.org, realgnd.org. Megan, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Everybody knows ExxonMobil and all the big fossil fuel companies, and maybe Saudi Arabia, they're to blame for heating up the world. We know that as we drive around in gas cars and we buy stuff for our homes made out of petrol plastics. Can you and I actually make a difference, not pretending to be green and virtue signaling, but can we actually help save a livable planet? Enter Lloyd Alter with his new book, Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle. Lloyd is an architect. He became a successful Canadian real estate developer, but then dropped out, kind of, to become a well-known green writer in a raft of publications that I've seen, especially full-time with Treehugger. Lloyd is plugged in. He has good data, and he's not pretending to be green. Lloyd Alter, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. Glad to be here. Why should any of us bother to give things up when the big system keeps running on fossil fuels anyway? Well, um, I always come down to one simple statement. We're buying what they're selling. Uh, We only had to see what happened in the pandemic when we stopped buying what they were selling, that coal companies went bankrupt, airlines almost went bankrupt, emissions dropped by about 7.8%. A lot of companies had to get total bailouts. It's simple, straightforward economics, supply and demand. So if we stop buying what they're selling, if we buy less of what they are selling, then there is less carbon going into the atmosphere. And I think it's really that simple and straightforward. But, you know, Dr. Michael Mann, who I really respect, says that it's kind of a fossil fuel company thing to push responsibility down to individuals. And in your book, you quote a 2009 study saying 72 percent of greenhouse gas emissions are related to household consumption. But our recent guest, Megan Seibert, told us industry accounts for one-third of all emissions. Why doesn't industry even show up in the numbers of your spreadsheet? Well, because it does, actually. Industry is making the stuff. Every time I buy a, say, uh, Hayer air conditioner, it's made in China. It's shipped over here. The emissions don't count against me in Canada because it's made in China. And we've exported those emissions. But industry there and industry in Canada are seriously part of our footprint. If you look at the so-called 17 tons of carbon that every Canadian puts out and compares it to the four tons that a person in France does, that's primarily because we have oil sands and they don't. So, you know, industry is in everything that we buy, everything that we do, every decision that we make. We're buying what they're making, they're making it with energy, and we are consuming it. So that study that said that 72% came to lifestyle decisions, that's us 
deciding we're going to buy a car, deciding we're going to fill it with gas, deciding we're going to live in the suburbs. We make the decisions that ultimately determine what our carbon footprints are. Good enough. Let's look to the origins of your work. How does your new book build on the work of Rosalind Reedhead in the UK? Well, Rosalind, I discovered by chance, was this woman who was an act, is an activist. She was running for mayor, and she read this uh, report out of Alto University in Finland that was titled The 1.5 Degree Lifestyle. And they looked at the way people lived in six different countries around the world and their diet and their living and everything else to see where their carbon footprints came from. And she decided she was going to live a 1.5 degree lifestyle for the year 2050, where we all have to theoretically have an average carbon footprint of 0.7 tons. She picked one ton of carbon per year. And the whole IPCC report talks about how there's, we've got to have a continual, like, continual declining carbon budget, amount of carbon that's used every year. I picked the number for 2030, which is 2.5 tons of carbon, because one ton of carbon is almost impossible. It's almost like background noise. Doing anything almost gets you to one, one ton of carbon. 2.5 tons of carbon in my particular living situation was actually close to possible to do without killing yourself. If I lived in the suburbs, if I had had to drive to work, it would have been another story altogether. But this is all fundamental decisions that we make. Am I going to live in an apartment or am I going to live in a house? Am I going to drive a car or am I going to ride a bike? Am I going to eat red meat or am I going to make chicken? If you make these choices, it doesn't mean I can't do anything. It just means you have to make different choices. Energy efficiency is promoted endlessly as a solution to cutting emissions, but we know about the Jevons paradox, and that suggests anything that becomes more efficient is just used more, which may result in more emissions. Your thoughts? Well, every time I mention the Jevons paradox, people say you shouldn't do that because it's used by people as an excuse not to make changes in their life because what's the point? But my favorite example of looking at the change is when there is a really dramatic, radical technological change. For instance, it was the steam engine that caused Stanley G. Bones to write his book. Suddenly there was a device that used tons and tons of coal. But it changed the world technologically. The current one that I'd use as an example are LEDs. Everybody thinks, oh, LEDs are marvelous. They've cut the, by a power of 10, the amount of electricity we use for lighting. And what you see now is almost 10 times as many lights. You go into some living rooms where you could do surgery in the dining room table because there are 50 little LED pot lights on the roof. You see LED billboards, LED encrusted buildings. They're everywhere. They're getting into everything. I've seen LED encrusted carpets. And when you add all that up, that's sort of Jeevan's in action. People find new ways to use the technology that dramatically increases its use. I would love to go into a store and when I buy something, look at the label and see how many emissions were required just to make this thing and get it to me. But labels never tell us that. Do you think our system purposely makes it hard to know the burden we are laying on the planet with our purchases? Oh, I think absolutely, yes. Unilever is a major European company that's announced that they're going to put carbon footprints on everything. 
that they sell. But it's also really, really hard to calculate. You know, if you want to measure the calories in something, in a food, you can just chemically figure it out. I think you burn it and you can measure it. Whereas if you want to figure out the calories in food, it's incredibly difficult. Where did this come from? Where did that come from? How far did it travel? Was it refrigerated all the way? I tried, as, as, as part of my book, I did a chapter where I tried to analyze the carbon footprint of a takeout chicken dinner. And it was wild. It varied all over the map because there were so many variables to take into account. So it's very, very hard. You mentioned you mentioned the pandemic and lowering emissions, but now we see that the world is using even more emissions than ever before this past year, despite the pandemic. What do you think we have and have not learned through this pandemic experience when it comes to climate change? Well, I mean, I was really hoping that the lesson from the pandemic would be that we can actually do this, that we don't have to all go back to driving our cars to the office. Uh, that we don't uh, have to fly to all kinds of conventions because we've learned how to use Zoom. And, in fact, there seems to be this pent-up demand. I want to get in an airplane and go somewhere. Uh, There seems to be uh, all the bosses saying, all right, that sort of worked, even though all these companies made billions of dollars even during the pandemic. But we want you coming back to the office because that's how we like to manage I said in my book, I was absolutely convinced that I thought that the pandemic was going to mean a sea change in the way that we worked and that 30% to 50% of employees would never go back to the office. And I see I'm already being proven wrong on that. So, you know, I don't know what it takes. The uh, last IPCC report was so scary that I thought that might shock people and it just like dropped under the waves like a stone. And you don't hear very many people talking about these things anymore. I think people are just not yet seeing the crisis in the face, even if they're on the West Coast and they can't breathe because of the smoke. Yes, I believe that's true. Now, you have been a successful architect and urban developer. Do you see a future of tiny emission cities as possible? Yes. I mean, if you just look at what's come out of Paris with the whole 15-minute city idea where she's tra- the mayor of Paris is trying to restructure it so that everything you can get everything that you need roughly within 15 minutes walk. And, you know, it's, our cities all used to be like that. I live in Toronto in uh, what was called a streetcar suburb. The streetcar went in 1913. And all of a sudden, now the developers took over the farmland and started putting houses in. But they put the houses on narrow lots because everybody still had to walk to the streetcar. So you didn't get low-density sprawl. And the main street where the streetcar is, there's a lot of traffic there. So there were stores and restaurants and groceries and that. So without even trying, just because of the coincidence of where I bought my home, I never really had to go very far at all. And then the medical system changed where they opened a clinic. I don't even have to go for more than a block to see my doctor. So everything is within reach. And a a lot of cities are like that. I was actually interviewed by a reporter from Vancouver who lived in, in a tiny apartment and didn't have a car and didn't eat meat. And I was saying, well, you know, you're living the 1.5 degree lifestyle, probably around 2.5 to 3 tons of carbon, without even trying, without even knowing you're doing it. 
some of these things are structural. You know, if you bought your house, you're stuck with a big problem of carbon there if it has a gas furnace. If you're in Quebec, you don't have a problem at all because it's electric. So it depends where you live. It depends on the circumstances. And it depends on how willing you are to make subtle changes. You know, I chose to move to a small village in rural BC. It's a walkable village, uh, just like you. It's two blocks to my doctor, but uh, it's two blocks to the pharmacy, two blocks to the grocery store, two blocks to everything. But it is pretty hard to get around. You need a car to do some long-distance shopping to go to Costco once a month or, you know, there's stuff you can't get here. Although online has, has kind of tended to solve that, online shopping. It's changed rural living. Yeah, small towns, if this is something that's everybody missed when they say the cities are the places to live to have low carbon, but I absolutely don't agree. You know, cities just export their carbon by all the stuff they buy that comes in in these massive trucks. I think small towns, if you actually did the analysis, would probably give you the lowest carbon footprint. So, Lloyd Alter, what do you think about degrowth? Well, I was often skeptical of degrowth because I just didn't think it was actually possible and the whole economy was based on growth. And I didn't realize until I read a paper by a fellow in Australia named Samuel Alexander that what I'd been talking about instead for years, what I called sufficiency, that we've already talked about efficiency doesn't work because people just go, cars get more efficient, they buy an SUV. Sufficiency, radical sufficiency, as I was calling it, was deciding what do you really need? How much do you need? What will be enough for you? And when you look at everything through a lens of sufficiency, you don't decide, oh, cars got more efficient, I want to get a bigger car. You decide, is a bicycle enough for me? Oh, an e-bike, is an e-bike enough for me? You start looking at everything like that. With dryers, you say, well, is a clothesline enough for me? You you make changes in your life to find out what is sufficient. Most importantly, like in a house, how much space do you need? And then what I really found is that This is just degrowth in another name. It's just not buying as much stuff, not spending as much stuff. It's about dialing back the economy to what are the necessities instead of the excess luxuries. It doesn't mean you don't have any luxuries, but it means you take what you need. And that when you do that, you find, for instance, if you're not spending $10,000 a year feeding a car in interest payments and gasoline, that you don't need as much money to live on. You don't need as high an income. So that all starts dialing back. So degrowth and sufficiency, I think, are very closely related. The other thing about degrowth is, you know, with the other people, the people who don't like degrowth say, well, we want decoupling. The alternative degrowth is decoupling. You separate carbon from your processes. And that's, in fact, the decision you make every day. I've separated my, I've decoupled my transportation because I take my e-bike instead of the Subaru, which I haven't driven in like a year and a half. You know, you can decouple a lot of things in your life just by making different decisions and deciding again what is sufficient. Degrowth, as Jason Hickel's written about it, about it, we're all going to have a lovely time not doing big industrial jobs anymore and uh, everybody will be healthier and happier, I think is a bit of a stretch. But I think sufficiency, which is very closely related, we can reach. 
You have been a food writer for a green publication among your many hats. What's your number one food recommendation to cut our personal emissions? Do we have to all become vegetarians to save the planet? Absolutely not. I mean, it would be better if we did. But, you know, vegetarianism isn't necessarily better for the planet. If you say, I'm going to stop eating meat and I'm going to eat a lot of cheese, well, cheese, which a lot of vegetarians eat, has a higher carbon footprint than chicken and pork because it's made from cows. So you're much better off to say, and also if you go vegan and you have a lot of vegetables, like I love tomatoes. So most hothouse tomatoes, because they're cooked in a greenhouse, which is fed with natural gas, have a higher carbon footprint than chicken. So you have to, in a sense, become a climatarian, which is a different category where you say less dairy, less red meat, but you can have a bit of chicken, you can have a bit of pork, you don't want to look because it's still got a higher footprint, and no hothouse tomatoes, no food that's flown in, a local sustainable diet uh, with a little bit of meat isn't the end of the world and can cut your carbon drastically. The single biggest thing is red meat. Get rid of the steaks. And a lot of the people have been doing that for years anyway. The proportion of red meat is going down in relation to chicken. So, no, I think we'd be much better if we actually looked at the climatarian menu and forgot about that. Well, being vegan would be great, but it's got to be a vegan without the wrong vegetables that are grown in hothouses. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is architect, green journalist, and Ryerson University lecturer Lloyd Alter. We're talking about living the 1.5-degree lifestyle, his new book, So as an architect, do you appreciate the possibilities of this thing called passive house designed for buildings that use hardly any energy? At least a decade ago, I recorded and then interviewed Austrian architect Guido Wimmers in Vancouver. He helped build Austria House for the 2010 Olympics, which needed no heat, even though it was in a mountain environment. People were skiing into it. No furnace. There are thousands and thousands of net zero kind of passive house of buildings in Europe, not just homes, but schools, office buildings, and apartments. Why is this green building tech almost unknown in North America and hardly built here? Well, you used two words, two phrases together, net zero and passive house. And the fact is, is they're very, very different. I knew you'd catch me on that. Net zero is very popular in the States. Net zero is sort of the idea that you can have your cake and eat it. You can build your house, you can add a little more insulation, but then you load up solar panels on the roof, and if you generate more power over the year than your house actually uses, then you get to call yourself net zero and feel good about it. The fact is that comes the dead of winter or a long time with no sun and things like that, you're still having to rely on the grid, and the grid has to be sized for those peak times. It's not based on an average. It's got to be there when everybody's using it. And so all that infrastructure, all those sort of in Ontario, for instance, peaker, peaker gas plants that only come on when they have to, when there's not enough out of the nukes and out of the water, net zero doesn't mean zero. It just means this balance. The passive house concept, on the other hand, says that we're going to insulate, insulate, insulate. We're going to build really well. We're going to seal it really tightly. And we're just going to use less. We're going to drive our energy consumption down as far as we can until we're just 
sipping a little bit of electricity. And then if the power even goes out, these houses are like thermos bottles. They can stay comfortable for a week or two without any heat at all. So it's very important to separate the two concepts. People in North America have not wanted to go for passive house because the builders have to learn how to build more carefully. I think quality control is the most important thing. They have this big red blower door and they pressurize the house. And if it doesn't pass, you've got to find every hole and you've got to patch it. It's really concerned about minimizing the use of energy, whereas net zero is just concerned about balancing it. And it lets people have big windows, and it lets people with all the jogs and gables and the architectural chutchkas that people love to have on houses, instead of saying, let's make a really simple, efficient box and insulate it to death and have great quality windows and be really comfortable in it. It's just a different way of thinking. And in Germany, where it started, it caught on, and in North America, it's just creeping in. What about heat pumps? Is, are, are they a good solution for our carbon footprint reduction? They are a wonderful solution used in tandem with dramatic reduction of the amount of energy you need. So if you insulate a house really well and take, toss out the gas furnace and put in a heat pump, you've done a really good thing. What's happening right now with heat pumps is in the States, and there are a couple of really popular and important thinkers who are saying this, is that, and this is something I've always said, energy is not carbon. They're not the same thing, and our problem is reducing the amount of carbon that's going into the atmosphere, and carbon comes from burning fossil fuels. Energy, if it comes from a clean source, and if it goes into a heat pump, doesn't put out any carbon. So this thinking is, just take your house, cover it with solar panels, uh, put in a heat pump, keep adding solar panels until you've got enough to power the heat pump, and you're set. And don't worry about energy efficiency, and don't worry about the washing machine and the electric car and the big windows, because you're burning clean energy and it's not producing any carbon, so heat pumps will save the world. The problem is, is that heat pumps are like air conditioners that have refrigerants in them that are greenhouse gases. Heat pumps take a lot of metal and a lot of stuff to build, and so do solar panels. And the whole system sort of favors those people who live in big houses with big roofs that can carry big solar arrays. And if you live in an apartment, that's not going to work for you. There's not enough roof. You know, if you live in a tiny house, it's not going to do it for you. So that I keep coming back to the thing saying, yes, heat pumps are wonderful, but only for that last little bit after you've done everything else to reduce your energy demand. Well, you can't include everything in a book or it would be a thousand pages and nobody would read it. But one thing I do find missing in your new book are emissions from the global military machine. Shouldn't we add a little something to your spreadsheet for the massive emissions that we use for consumer security, let's say, for the corporations that mine, pump, and cut down the resources all over the world so we can bring the loot back to our place? 
Well, you know, when we talk about 72% of those emissions are lifestyle, the other 28% of the emissions are supposed to be those ones that are sort of governmental, theoretically include the military. But I think you're absolutely right in saying that we grossly underestimated. I saw a statistic just the other day that the American military alone was a emitter of more carbon than about two dozen countries altogether. It's uh, something that we overlook constantly and shouldn't. They're all running on fossil fuels. I read your whole book. I learned a lot of good stuff. You give a lot of great sources and leads, as a good journalist should. But judging from the top scientists I interview for this show, I have a little bit of a dispute about your title. I don't think there's a hope in hell of staying below 1.5 degrees C of global warming. Maybe your title should be more like uh, the save-our-butts lifestyle. You may well be right. I mean, the new latest IPCC report was both optimistic and saying it could be done, but, you know, we have to do so much to actually save our butt to get there that it's going to be an incredible challenge. And the problem of it is, is, you know, half the world is living um, under 2.5 tons a year now. Half the world is living a 1.5 lifestyle now, and they're in energy poverty. You know, they don't have enough heat. They're cooking on wood. But 50% of the emissions are coming from the top 10% of the world's population in terms of wealth. And that's all of us. It's everyone who's listening to this show. Uh, We are the people who are making the emissions. And yet everybody's saying, oh, it's China, it's China. But what's China doing? It's making the stuff that we're buying. You're right. It should be the save our butt diet or this lifestyle. And what do you hope your book is going to do for people, and where can we find out more, Lloyd? Oh, you can find out more by getting the book, which is available from New Society Publishers, uh, will be available online in an ebook and an audiobook format. Uh, you can read the original 1.5 Lifestyle Report. There's a wonderful new website called hottercool.org that has been looking at this and updating everything in terms of lifestyle. And I've been actually working with them to produce a monster version of the spreadsheet that I did that the public can use. It's not like a little carbon calculator. You use it like a fitness calculator where you put something in everything you eat and everything that you do and so that everybody will be able to do this on their own. We have been speaking with Canadian architect, university lecturer, green journalist, and author Lloyd Alter. His new book is Living the 1.5-Degree Lifestyle from New Society Publishers. Find links for all of this in my show blog, published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Lloyd, it was great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Thank you so much for listening to Radio Ecoshock as we kick off a whole new fall season of shows. Next week, we will examine the weird world of extreme rainfall events striking around the world with new science just when we need it. Artificial intelligence meets the climate challenge. Listen in.